ever wanted to say in your New Year's resolution, maybe, you thought you were going to read a, a book of the Bible every month or something like that. If you could start with 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, you could get it all done today. Uh, they're all real short, easy uh, things to look at. And we're going to, over the next few weeks, just take a quick glance out of a passage in 1 John. Then we'll take a quick glance next week out of a passage in 2 John. And then the next week, we'll take a quick glance out of a passage out of, what do you think? Third John. There you go. All right. And there's not a fourth John, and so we won't continue in that. We'll then be ready to jump into the book of Joshua. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere in a pew around you that looks like this, says the story on top of it. It's still just a regular Bible, but the first 10 pages are printed in color on glossy paper. It gives you a summary of what this whole book is about. And so if you're not real sure about that, you can take that home with you as a gift from us to you. If you'll read those pages at the beginning, uh, I'd love to discuss it with you after you have. In this Bible, it would be on page 863. We'll be in 1 John 4, 7 through 21 this morning. Our mission as a church, our mission statement, if you would, our action steps, our values are based off of these three ideas, love, God, love his church, love people. Now, it wasn't real hard to come up with those. When churches come up with vision statements and mission statements, it really shouldn't be uh, a really difficult process. The Bible clearly gives us a mission, right? And we really shouldn't veer too much off of what that has to say. So when Jesus was asked, what are the most important, what's the most important law, the most important rule, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. He was quoting what's called the Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'd encourage you, especially parents, there's some great parenting advice there in Deuteronomy 6. Go back and read that. The short version is you should love God with every part of you and you should spend all your time teaching your children to love God with every part of them. That's the summary version of Deuteronomy 6. And then the second he says is to love people. Now we've added love his church uh, as a second one, and I'll go more into why we've added that next week. And so at the beginning of each year, we decide to spend the first three weeks looking at those three ideas. So you can go ahead and know the first three Sundays of every year, uh, you got a pretty good bet on what we'll be preaching and looking at. Love God, love his church, love people. The new year, there's really nothing actual There's nothing extra spiritual about a new year. There's nothing mystical or significant. You don't actually get a fresh new start on things, but it does feel that way, doesn't it? Uh, Here at our church, we've got brand new newlyweds sitting in the back. Donezes, congratulations. Back. Everybody say, hey. They didn't know I was going to do that. They're really embarrassed now. John, we got some brand new grandbabies in the hospital, some twins. Give it up for that, all right? So even as a church, it, it feels like like a fresh new start. Pastor Joe is newly retired. He doesn't even know what to do with his time now. He's newly retired. Fresh new start on a lot of things. I'm sure you've got things in your life that feel like a fresh new start. And so many of us make resolutions. We set things down. And so we decide as a church, this is a good season for us to just remind ourselves of what our mission is in life. We believe our mission as a church is what you can live out as an individual on a daily basis. 
We have a grand vision statement, this big idea that we exist as a church to redeem the church and the community with the gospel by making disciples. It's intentionally grand. It's intentionally almost unattainable uh, because we have a a grand vision because we have a grand God that we want to be a church that redeems the local church that here's the local church, we would be a light of the gospel in our neighborhood, but that it wouldn't stop here, that we could be a part of seeing other churches do that as well. And then we believe that we, we have a calling to help redeem this community, to be a voice and a light into the community itself. And, and so those ideas are huge and are overwhelming to think about living out on a daily basis. But the mission, love God, love his church, love people, you can do that. You can live that out. You can love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because he first loved us. You can love his church, and you can love people through the power of Jesus Christ. I saw a shirt one day that said, Jesus loves you, and I'm trying. I, you know, it's funny, but it's accurate. That's, there, are, there are people in our lives that we think, you know, I'm glad Jesus loves you because I'm not even sure that your mama does. Some, some people are difficult to love, but through the power of the gospel, we can do this. And it's not, we can't even, listen, we can't even love God on our own. We're going to see in the passage today, even loving God's not something we can do in our own strength and power. We don't have it within us. God has to initiate something. God is so other than, so holy, so higher than us that he cannot be attained by us, sinful beings. He can't be reached by us. This is, this is the essence of Christianity. Anytime people start talking about in their religious system earning their way to God or being good enough to to be with God or to attain some uh, existential status of some kind, they, they've lowered the divinity of God. And it's not the one true God. The one true God is so holy, so other than, that he is unattainable by sinful beings. And so we looked at for four weeks in Advent the miracle of his incarnation the progressive intimacy of God and the meta-narrative of history throughout Scripture and how he moves not just from creating human beings but from walking with them and then when everything gets broken to creating a system of, of rituals and temples and laws and sacrifices so we can interact with God and then he moves from that to walking amongst us himself putting on skin in the incarnation and walking amongst human beings. But then he says, it's better for you if I leave. I remember as a new believer the first time I read that, thinking, how? How in the world could it be better? Imagine imagine walking life with Jesus for three years. If I'm going to imagine to be one disciple, I'm sure it's not real difficult for you which one I'm going to imagine myself as. Peter. I'm going to imagine myself as Peter because he's loud and he puts his foot in his mouth often. He speaks before he thinks. And I can relate to all of those characteristics. And so I imagine myself being Peter, and I imagine as a little boy going through school and being told I wasn't good enough to be a priest. And so I become a fisherman, and I follow my daddy, and I do what my daddy does, and I learn how to fish, and I create a business. And I've always laughed that the only time Jesus catches, um, Peter catches fish in the Bible is when Jesus tells him to. 
We don't see any other time when he's catching fish on his own. Every time Jesus encounters him, he's not catching fish. Even the time when somebody said, if we should pay taxes, he says, Peter, catch a fish. And everybody thought, yes, I finally get to catch another fish. And then Jesus comes to him and he gives him that rabbinical call that a rabbi would give a disciple that he sees worth in, that he sees value, he sees potential. When a rabbi saw a young man and he thought, that young man can do what I do, he would tell that young man, follow me. I imagine being Peter and hearing that and thinking, you see worth in me. You see value. You see potential. And then realizing this is not just some regular man. This is the son of God. He said, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And people said, some people say you're this guy. Some people say you're that guy. And then then Peter got it right. Peter says, you are the son of God, the sent one, the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't even give him credit. He goes, that wasn't even you. The Holy Spirit gave you that. But that realization that you're walking life, that you're hanging out with, you're breaking bread, you're eating with God himself, the sent one. And I don't, they didn't even fully get it. And so when he looks at him and says, it's better if I go. I know the end of the story, and I struggle with that. I, would, I, I, would want, I wouldn't want him to go. I would want to just walk with him. And he says, it's better than I go. In the process of progressive intimacy, he then gives the Holy Spirit, the wonderful counselor, God himself inside of us. This cannot be overemphasized. This cannot be fully grasped or understood. This progressive intimacy that God offers us to live within us, and he does it out of love. God loves you. That's a really big deal. It's a simple concept that I want you to see today is that God loves you, that we can love him because he first loved us, is what we're going to look at today. If you would stand with me as we read God's word. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Even the first word, beloved. Beloved, let us... Love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not That we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us by this. We know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen 
and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who, ha- who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Lord, as we look at your word today, Lord, I need you to speak beyond my ability. Lord, such a simple concept of your love, I cannot clearly communicate. I cannot adequately communicate. Lord, I pray that you do a supernatural work today. That it wouldn't just hit our heads, but also our hearts. It would play out in our hands and it would be infused in our daily habits. Lord, let this be the defining characteristic of our identity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In our values as a church, we articulate this and that we are called to love God with a high view of Him by and through His Word. Even that word, his word, when we're talking about John writing this, has double meaning, doesn't it? At the beginning of our Advent season, we looked at John chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And so there are these deeper meanings even to this idea of word. That word logos means reason, or the reason for everything. See, There is no way to adequately communicate who God is. When Moses asked him his name, he said, I am. Now, why would he say, I am? He says, I am, because there is no adequate ending to that sentence in any language. There's no way to completely articulate how amazing and incredible God is. 
And so when we realize that that God who cannot be described, who cannot be grasped, who cannot be fully understood, loves us in a way that also cannot be grasped, cannot be fully explained, cannot be fully understood, it ought to boggle your mind in the best possible way. Such a simple idea. God loves you. It really ought to be the defining characteristic of your identity. It ought to be the question that, I mean, the sentence that follows your name. A friend of ours communicated that idea, the sentence that follows your name. I'll never forget that sentence. It's now the sentence that follows their name in my mind. When people think about you, what is the sentence that follows your name? Identity is something we all struggle with. Who are we? What is our purpose in this world? And, and yes, there are easy preachery Sunday school answers like we are children of God and our purpose is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And those aren't just preachery Sunday school answers. That's the truth. But it's hard to... It's, those ideas are so big, so grand, it's hard to live that out on a daily basis. It's hard to even know what that means. What does that mean to live that out? What does that mean that I am a child of God, loved by God? It can't even fully be grasped. I've told you before, my kids love to, we're a super affectionate family. We love to talk about love and how much we love each other. Um, Maggie loves to tell anyone how much she loves them. And they'll always say, Daddy, I love you more than you love me. And then I'll always say, that's not possible. I have a father's love, and a father's love is better than a kid's love. It's greater. I used to be a kid. I remember what it's like to love my parents. And and I know you love me, but you can't love me like I love you. And they'll go, no, it's possible. They'll just argue, and we'll argue back and forth about who loves more. And I know something that they don't know. I, I, know, I, I was there the moment they were born. I watched it happen. I prayed for them before they were even conceived. I, I would do anything for my kids. And it has nothing to do with them earning it. It has nothing to do with them being good enough. It has nothing to do with whether they're a disappointment or not. I just love them. And that doesn't even begin to describe how God loves us. The world will try to hijack your identity in any way it possibly can. Based off of your gender, your socioeconomic status, your ethnicity, your background, your education, your intelligence your level of perceived success, the world will try to, to define your identity through that and you will be tempted to let them. And when we let the world define our identity by these things, we will always find ourselves empty and wanting. We will always find ourselves in this place where we just know we're not good enough. 
There's always some way we got to prove it. There's always some way we got to live up to what we want our identity to be. And there is such a peace that can lie in this sentence following your name, child of God, loved by God. As a child of God, you will have inherited traits. Love is inherited. Inherited traits can be dominant or or not. In my family, my mom's side of the family, my mom's maiden name is Bolin, like bowling, but without the G. And we always joke that the Bolin gene is strong among men. I went to a pastor's event here recently, or last year, and the guy who used to pastor most of my family in Arkansas was one of the guest speakers at this event. And I went up to him and I said, you used to be the pastor of much of my family in Arkansas. And he took one look at me and he said, the Bolins? And I said, yes, the Bolin gene is strong. We joke often that you could take my baby pictures, Cash's baby pictures, uh, my nephew's baby pictures, and about three of my cousins, and no one in my family would probably be able to identify which baby pictures belong to who. Only as we got older could you start to distinguish some of us. The Bolin gene is strong. For Christmas, I got an Ancestry.com DNA test where you spit in a tube and you mail it in and they are going to mail you back what your genetic breakup is, right? This idea of where you come from and where your people come from and and I've done my own research, and I think just with, like in, in hopeful wishes, by clicking certain buttons, I found myself to be related to William Wallace of Scotland. I don't know that that's accurate. And so I am nervous that this test is going to come back and tell me I just related to like horse thieves that got kicked out of Scotland or something. But in my mind, I'll always be William Wallace's great, 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 great grandson. But we've come a long way in DNA. I decided to research and figure out how did we get to the point that I could spit in a tube, send it in the mail, and people could tell me who I am, right? Like, this is amazing, the science that we've come up with. And it's really not even that new relatively, right? So I started doing some research. When did we start figuring this stuff out? We've had an idea of DNA for a long time, but we didn't know what it was, We knew that it was an acid, but we didn't know how it broke down. And so I found an article in Time Magazine in 2003 that was from the 50-year anniversary of when the gene was discovered. And it was actually a fascinating story. I won't tell you the whole story, but it was like this cutthroat uh, competitive thing where they, scientists started to figure out, we're getting close to figuring out how to identify and know what a gene is. And so scientists all across the world were in this race to be the one to figure it out. And like the two most unlikely guys are the ones who figured it out, Watson and Crick. They were some, out of all the people who were really researching it, funded by universities and organizations, they were the least educated in the area and but the most ambitious and if i'm going to be honest after reading the story the most willing to break moral code and steal from other people everyone contributed to their discovery willingly or unwillingly they found ways to 
peek at other people's research and figure out what's going on. They were even told by their university that they were failures. They needed to stop researching it, but they were obsessive about it and they couldn't stop thinking about it. And they would find ways to sneak and get other people's research and they just kept going after it and they discovered the gene. And even at the end of it, the the article was titled, A Twist of Fate. Two unknown scientists solved the secret of life in a few weeks of frenzied inspiration and perspiration in 1953, and here's how they did it. At the end of the article, one of them said, It's true that by blundering about, we stumbled upon gold. But the fact remains that we were looking for gold. In other words, they weren't scientifically qualified to be the guys who figured this out. They could not have done it on their own, but by stealing little pieces of information from everybody else that wouldn't work together, they were able to put it all together and discover it before anybody else and claim the name to fame that you didn't know, but Crick and Watson discovered the gene. And from there, we got to the point that I could spit in a tube in Jacksonville, Florida and mail it somewhere, and within the next couple of weeks, I'll be able to let you know If I show up with half my face painted blue yelling freedom, you know I figured out it was true, right? Audrey is begging the Lord that that would not be true because she thinks I'll be unmanageable at that point. Genetics are something that we have no say on. It's a passive thing. There's nothing I can do about looking like a bowling It's just who I am. It's genetically part of who I am. As a child of my mother, there are genetics built into my DNA that create me to look somewhat the way that I look. Now, my dietary habits contribute to my physique, but if you look at the Bolin men, I'm actually one of the skinnier ones. We're all big old boys. And my grandmother loves to remind all of us how much we need to fix that in a way that only a grandmother can, bluntly, directly, with no mercy or grace. (laughs) But there's nothing I can do about who I am. When we read verses 7 through 14, we see that as a child of God, with that as our identity, love is an inherited trait. It's a non-negotiable. The book of 1 John, I'm convinced, and others are as well, This is really a commentary on John chapter 15. The same guy wrote both. You'll see so many things that that link back to John 15. So I would encourage you in your own devotional time, if you don't know what to study this week, read John 15, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, and then read 1 John. It's like John's own commentary on what he wrote. John loves to write about love. He identified himself as the one whom... Jesus loved, right? I don't think he did that out of arrogance. I don't think he was insinuating that others weren't loved by God. I think John knew that the best sentence to follow your name is the one who Jesus loved. What a great sentence to follow your name. Look at 7 through 14. Beloved. Beloved. What a great name. Beloved. Let us love one another. For love is from God. That's where it's from. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you actually know how to love, that's because you were born of God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. 
Because God is love. That's who he is. God is light. God is life. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is what we just spent five weeks talking about, the incarnation of Christ. God made his love manifest through Jesus Christ. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. That we, not not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Love is an inherited trait of God's children purchased on the cross out of his very nature. It's who he is. That's his very nature, his very essence is love. The, the idea of love originates out of him. The expressions of love are just us being created in his image. The, our desire to be loved is because we were created in his image. Our ability to love is because we are his children. This, this whole thing is, is based on how much God loves us. And by being his children, it's an inherited natural trait of ours, a characteristic that we can't do anything about. I, I, can't, I can't change my appearance on, on the genetic level. I can get in shape. I can dye my hair. I can do all sorts of things. But there, there's certain things about my bone structure, about my skin tone, about who I am that were decided for me by my genetics. See, love is not an optional thing that we need to muster up the ability to do. Love is not something that we as children of God need to say, i got to work harder on being loving. Love is a natural result of being loved by God. See, this is what John 15 teaches. John 15 teaches that the way that we bear fruit is by abiding in Christ, by dwelling in Him and His love and His word. It's the three things John 15 tells you to abide in. The Greek word for abide is meno, dwell, make your home in, get comfortable there. When we get ourselves comfortable in that identity of child of God, when we get ourselves comfortable within the word of God expressed through scripture, when we get ourselves comfortable in Christ, knowing who we are in Christ, in that identity, we will bear fruit. What's the first one? Love. You think Galatians chapter 5, where it lists the fruit of the Spirit, fruit singular, the fruit of the Spirit. This is what grows when we dwell in the Spirit, when we walk in the Spirit, when we dwell in the Word of God and the love of Christ. What will naturally come out of us? Love. Love. This is not something 
that I'm going to tell you today to work harder at. The, the application is not be more loving. The application is dwell in Christ and dwell in his word and dwell in the identity of being in Christ. Make your home right here in the word of God. Make your home your comfort in the fact that God loves you, that you are loved by him. You are his child, blessed, forgiven, beloved. That The sentence that follows your name like the author of this is the one whom Jesus loves. Dwell in that. Make your home there. Let it be an inherited trait. Be who you are. When I go home to where my family's from and spend time with them, some of my characteristics of that family will start to become more pronounced. I start acting more like them. We start acting more like me. We get together. It's just a fun, grand time together. And, and we just start gelling, right? When we get around Audrey's family, we always come away with a little more of a southern twang at North Mississippi. Right? We get around... We spend time with them. We start to become more like them. Spend time in God's word. Spend time with God's people. Spend time dwelling in the identity that Christ gives you. The reason we can inherit it, inheritance is a natural result of those who are adopted and redeemed. Love is redemptive. Verses 15 through 19 this has been communicated already in 7 through 14 so well, but it continues on. 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So, we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him remember that word abide means dwell make your home in be comfortable which means not only are we given the opportunity in the process of progressive intimacy to abide and dwell and be comfortable in God and in Jesus but that he abides in us there's mutual abiding mutual dwelling the relational Love aspect and intimacy here. Verse 17, by this is love perfected. That word means complete, lacking nothing. Love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also are we in this world. But there is no fear in love, beloved but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Here's what John's trying to communicate. I, it sounds repetitive, almost like a riddle or poetry, as he talks about we abide in him and he abides in us, and whoever abides in this, he'll abide in you. And it, 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 Because, again, there's no way to adequately articulate what he's trying to say. You can't fully express this grand idea. It's the one thing I try to preach every week. I don't know if you picked up on this. I really just have one sermon. I just preach it from a different text every Sunday. The one sermon is that we're all desperately broken in need of a Savior, but God's love was shown to us and that while we were still sinners, He died for us. 
The word he uses is propitiation. It means that there was something that you owed, a debt you had to pay, a penalty that was due you. He took that and made it his. As a result, his righteousness is then imputed upon you. This is the one sermon I have. This is the life-changing good news of the gospel that we desperately need to be saved. Our, we should have fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Punishment has to do with doing wrong. We've done wrong and we are due and worthy of punishment. There's a punishment coming to us as human beings that have fallen in sin that we cannot bear. We can't pay it. We could try to pay it for eternity and we would never pay that debt off. Our sin, our grievance against God is so great, our debt is so high that it cannot be paid by sinful beings. This is what hell is. It's us going and paying for the rest of eternity for what we've done. Well, God shows his love for us so scandalously. Other religions struggle with this fact. Islam in particular, really, this is where, see, Islam, people, a lot of people don't know much about Islam in the Christian world, and we think that they don't want anything to do with Jesus. The truth is, they have a very high view of Jesus. They call him Esau. He's in the Quran more than anybody. He's talked about more than anyone in the Quran. This is the point where they really start to say they cannot agree with us because to them they have this they think this high view of God that wouldn't allow him to be humiliated publicly like that. Right? It doesn't make sense to them that that if Jesus was God, then how could he be killed on the cross? And so Islam says that Jesus was not killed on the cross. And depending on which sect of Islam you're in, there are different perspectives on how that went down, whether he was replaced by someone else or it was just the appearance of, but it wasn't actually Jesus, they say. And here's that's, and you know what? To a degree, they're right. It is scandalous. It's crazy. It's wild that God, who we do view this highly, who's this perfect, this holy, would allow himself to be humiliated would allow himself to be put on a cross like that in a public way and and beaten beyond recognition. That doesn't make sense that God would do that. But that's love. That's how he demonstrated his love. See, what, what we've got to live in is that love. Not, not the flannel board kindergarten VBS version of God loves you. Not the sticker with the smiley, sunny, you know, smiley uh, face sun and, and just God loves you. The bloody cross, God loves you. The bittersweetness of that reality. It was my sin that put him there. That there is no variation of my story where I'm worthy of that. There's no variation of story where it was just a nice thing that I deserved that Jesus would love me in that way. There's no variation of my story where I'm good enough for God to love me like that. 
Where every version of my story ends in me deserving to be on that cross, but him demonstrating his love for me by him being my propitiation and taking it for me. Love is redemptive. Love takes someone who is desperately broken in need of a savior and adopts him as a child, brings him to the dinner table, gives him an inheritance. This is the redemptive love that Jesus loves you of the cross, the bloody cross. Love is also contagious. Verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him who ever loves God must also love his brother. Wow. John is so lovey-dovey. And he's so gentle. And I love the way he writes, but I mean, he gets real here for a second. If you say with your mouth, I love God. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian my whole life. When I was five years old, I walked down an aisle, I said a prayer, I got baptized, and I love God. But you go about your life with no care, with no compassion for others. And listen, Jesus even says, look, it's, I'm not talking about you just being nice to people who are nice to you. That doesn't count, right? Jesus says everybody can do that. Everybody can be nice to the people who are nice to them. Everybody can love people who love them. Everybody can love people they want something from. I'm talking like, do you have a supernatural compassion and affection for people you can't stand? For whatever reason you choose to not like them, can you have love for them? Not tolerance, not I'll put up with it. Not I'll handle that. But love. That only comes through inheritance. You can't muster that up. I can muster up being nice to you. I can muster up being cordial and polite. I can muster up even being generous to you. I can't, I can't from within my own willpower make myself love you. Because I am an incredibly selfish and self-focused human being. And so are you. Love spreads. It's contagious. God calls us to love him. First and greatest commandment, Shema, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's what I love that Jesus says after he says the second commandment. He says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quote from Leviticus chapter 19, which is a fascinating chapter to read, by the way. And then he says something that has always blown my mind. He says, the law and the prophets hinge on these two things. Here's what Jesus is communicating. When we read Galatians, 
Paul said, all the law can be summed up in this one word, love your neighbor. Now, is this some sort of simplistic approach to just rainbows and butterflies and unicorns and and really all Christianity is about is being nice to people? No, that's not what they're saying at all. Here's a matter of fact what this is saying is when we recognize how much God loves us and we rest in that identity, we dwell, we abide, we meno in that identity. So resting, abiding, dwelling, meno, that idea, I cannot adequately communicate to you just the, the comfort, the, the permanence, the, the this is where I am, this is who I am of that, right? When we rest there, and so rest there is not a five-minute visit in the morning. Rest, rest there is not listening to Christian music on the way to work. Rest there is, is not just a nod to Jesus. I, I love God. I, love, I go to church on Sundays. Resting, dwelling, abiding there is, is comprehensive to your life. This is, where, this is your home. This is where you live. More than where your bed is. Like when you go to work, this is where you live. When you go to school, this is where you live, is in this identity of the one whom Jesus loved. When you do that, you will bear fruit of the spirit of love. It'll spread out of you in a way you can't imagine. On <clears throat> plane ride back last week, I got here just in time for church, about a little bit of a nap before church. My wife stayed back to take care of her father. And <clears throat> on my plane ride from Memphis to Atlanta, I had a lady to my left who lives in Jacksonville who is not a believer, and I got to share the gospel with her and talk to her and minister to her some. To my right was a, I'm not being mean here, she was self-proclaimed a psychotic cat lady. That's what she called herself. She was probably in her late 60s, maybe early 70s. She had cat ears on, a airbrushed cat shirt. She showed me her cat tattoo that she got for Christmas on her ankle. This is a legitimate, self-proclaimed cat lady. And there were some screws loose. I mean, she couldn't figure out how to buckle her seatbelt right. She couldn't, I mean, all kinds of things. And so I just thought, you know what? I've got this intelligent woman that I'm wanting to share the gospel with to my left. But it's just as important for me to share love with the cat lady. And so I continued to, I helped her buckle her seatbelt. I helped her get her drink. I helped her get her bag. I helped her take care of all sorts of things. She was listening to me share the gospel to this other lady. And she said, I I hear that you're some sort of Christian. I said, I am. She goes, I am too. I said, okay, great. She goes, are you a pastor? I said, I am. She goes, that's why you're so nice. (laughs) See, we can laugh about that, but you know she's probably not used to people being kind to her. Right? Look, I'm not a naturally kind person. I'm a naturally selfish person. That wasn't me. I wasn't, I was not Jimbo. That was not the inherited traits of my family. It was the inherited traits of my heavenly father. 
It wasn't hard work for me. It was just me recognizing the love that God has given me and it flowing out of me. It's contagious. When we fall in love with God, that other stuff starts to play out. What we always do is we make the mistake of behavior modification. This is New Year's resolutions, right? I'm going to get skinnier. I'm going to get healthier. I'm going to do better on my finances. And I'm going to make it past February with these. But we don't, right? We try to change our behavior. And and here's what happens. Let's say you've got one bad habit in your life that you think, I'm going to get rid of this. And on your own willpower, you, you master it. You get rid of it. It's gone. Chances are you just shifted it somewhere else, right? That, that acting out, that bad behavior, really is just going to play itself out in some other way. It's going to play itself out over here. You got rid of this one, and you're real proud, but that excess just moved over here, Right? Behavior modification doesn't work. We can't really change our behavior all that much. We can fall in love with God. We can dwell and abide in his love and in his word and in his gospel. And he will transform us as we bear fruit. So that's my challenge to you this year. The simple but not simplistic. Fall in love with Jesus. If I could accomplish one thing for you as your pastor, it would be to help you fall in love with Jesus. And I mean, and look, again, not, not simplistic, not just a nod, like really rest there. Find your home and falling in love with Jesus. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength means not loving the world more than you love him. I would encourage you to read 1 John this week. It won't take you long. It's just a few pages. As you read it this week, you'll see this idea. We can't love the world and Him at the same time. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength means all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means some other things have got to move out of the way. I can't, I can't love Him and the world at the same time. So maybe you need to repent of some things you love more than Jesus. Let's pray.